So these last uh, several weeks, we've been talking about our mission and our vision. You'll see those uh, in your bulletin. And, uh, and as we've moved through that, uh, I just wanted to say a couple words. One is, uh, this is the second year we've really done this, and uh, I think it's really the perfect time to do it. It's the beginning of many ways, the ministry year. Uh, our ministry year kind of models the way our city feels uh, between the school system uh, and the university. The beginning of the year really doesn't feel like January 1st. By the time you get to January 1st, you kind of feel like, gosh, I'm halfway into this thing. Well, it's because it kind of started at the beginning of August. That's the way life feels for many of us, and not just because those of us who have kids. That's just our city in general. And so as we come to the beginning of the year, especially the beginning of a year uh, where we have been in the midst of COVID, I think it's appropriate uh, for us to kind of say, what is it that our church is all about? Am I ready to kind of double down on what our church is about? Or is this a good time for you to kind of appraise what God's doing in your life, what God's doing in the life of our church? And maybe it's time for some of us to find a new fit. Now, I'm not trying to kick anybody out here. Uh, but as, as we've gone through COVID, this is the great sifting system of what we've thought about a lot of our lives. For instance, I didn't go work out at my favorite place in the world, Orange City, for a long time until I was vaccinated. Because I didn't feel comfortable with it. I had to reappraise things. Am I ready to go back? If so, is that where I want to go? I ended up saying, sure, that's where I'm going back. That's a silly example, but we're all doing that across the board. We're doing it with our jobs. We're doing it with where we live. And I think it's appropriate for us to do it with church, too. Now, again, this isn't to scare. This is to say, hey, is this what God wants for me? And so as we've looked at these things, we've talked about reaching the skeptic, as we've talked about serving the poor, as we've talked about uh, loving those who are different than us, it seems impossible, doesn't it? But we said that God's given us really kind of two tools in this. Uh, one, for our church, is we're saying, I mean, arts and beauty is a big part of that. And we're also saying today that community is a big part of that. So let's read a passage from John 13 together. John 13, verses 31 to 35. When he was gone, he was Judas. Judas had just left the room after... They'd had the last meal together. Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The word of the Lord. You probably picked up on this. It's real obvious. Jesus is using repetition to get our attention. In those first two verses, do you see the word he uses five times? It's glory. And then you look at the last two verses and you see a word that he uses four times. What is it? Love. These are the two big important words of this passage. Well, let's talk about glory first. When you talk about glory, it's kind of this vague term, isn't it? It's a word that you probably don't use very much in your daily life, but it's an important Bible word. You might have a better sense of what peace means or love or joy or hope, but glory. Glory, what is it exactly? Well, in the Bible, it's got a broad range of meaning, and you can kind of simplify that broad range to, to say that glory means value. 
That glory means authority. And that glory means beauty. All right, let's talk about value first. Uh, when we glorify God, it means that we're ascribing him value. Last Saturday, um, I glorified the cats much more fully than I did last night. Uh, I did it because I was there. I wasn't at the game last night. It's bad for a preacher to be at a game from 7.30 to 11 o'clock and have to wake up early. So I didn't go last night. Plus, I didn't get offered a free ticket like I did the week before. <laughs> and I gloried in the cats heavily. I screamed like a crazed animal. I rushed the field like I was in college again. I didn't care. I was describing value, or I was glorying in the cats. So glory is value. Then you have glory as authority. Uh, in, in verse 31, you see Jesus refer to himself as son of man. And son of man is, is really a reference back to the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, the son of man is this king-like figure. And when you're a king-like figure, it entails power and authority, and it requires submission from your subjects. So here in our passage, the Father and the Son are glorifying one another in their mutual submission to one another because they both have authority. Let me give an illustration. Think about being in the medical profession. Some of you are. And think about the process that you submit to because of the glory and the authority of the profession. Well, the first thing you did is you probably worked like a dog all through school to get good grades. And then you hope beyond all hope that you can get into a graduate program. You do, and you work your tail off. Then after your graduate program, you probably assume a residency. And in your residency, you have this grueling, rigorous schedule. And when you're done, you spend tons of money as you pay back a large amount of student loans. I hate to bring that up. But what is it? What is it? What's, this? What's happening? You, you, you're, you're glorifying the medical profession. Because you submitted to it with your time and your money. It has glory in your life. So glory is value. Glory is authority. Glory is beauty. Luke chapter 9 is one of the accounts of the Mount of Transfiguration. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John for a time of prayer. And like always, Peter, James, and John fall asleep. And when they wake up, they see Jesus' face, and his face is altered. His clothes are dazzling white. And the text says that the three disciples saw his glory. This instance speaks of Jesus' beauty as his glory. So you put all three of these together, value, authority, beauty, and they all communicate a heaviness. And the word used for glory in the Old Testament is also used for liver. Strange. Liver. Well, if you're in the medical profession, you might know what that is. The liver is the heaviest of all your internal organs. So value, authority, and beauty, they all are a little different. They all communicate this heaviness. So why spend so much time talking about this philosophical word? Well, the first reason is it's in our text. The second reason is that it's incredibly relevant to your life tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. 
as you get ready for work, as you get ready for school. I, I, I know it seems like dating and marriage, relationships, parenting, work, money, they're all way more practical. They have more to do with your everyday lives than glory does, but that's not true. I know those are things that seem like they occupy your life, but there's something underneath all of those things, and it's your heart. And your heart, biblically speaking, is not the seat of your emotions. It's the command center of your life. Your feelings, your thoughts, your actions all flow out of your heart. And your heart is created to give glory, to give heaviness to a glorious or heavy figure. In other words, you can't help but give glory to something that you find glorious. You can glorify the cats, like I did, and did, dude did yesterday. You can glorify your clean home, your beautiful yard, your physical image, your place of uh, the place of employment, the activities in your kids. Why do you do that? It's because that's how you're created. But you're also created to only find true fulfillment when you glorify God. So the Bible's written in such a way to present a glorious God who's made himself accessible to us in Jesus Christ that we might glory in him. That's what our life is really all about. And so Jesus knows this, and that's why he's trying to keep us in the loop when he says what he does in verse 32. In verse 32, he uses this word at once. He's saying that he's going to be glorified at once, meaning a certain point in time. And the point in time he's referencing is his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's where his glory is most clearly observed. And according to verse 33, that time is fast approaching. But what happens when Jesus is gone? How will his glory be displayed when he's ascended? You see it in verse 34 and 35. Verse 34 and 35, that's where the, the, the word love is used four times. So you can see Jesus' glory when he's here. And then when he's gone, you'll now be able to see it in his disciples. And what Jesus is saying is that the way that the outside world is going to know that he's glorious is not by his physical presence, but it's by the way that you and I and all of God's followers love one another. Jesus' plan A for drawing a lost world unto himself is by using the church. I know that sounds crazy. And it sounds even crazier if you start reading the rest of the New Testament starting in Acts to the end. And here's what you'll find. You'll find a group of people who seem to fail at this task in miserable fashion. You got Peter... In Galatians 2, he discriminates against Gentile believers in favor of Jewish believers. And in Galatians 2, Paul's got to call him out. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll, maybe you'll start guessing like I have, is this even a church? You've got these people that are suing one another. You've got these people, there's sexual morality happening within the church. Within this church, they're arguing about who's the best church leader. Is it Peter? Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? And then the really super spiritual people say, it's Jesus. And so the result is you have this very fractured body of believers. It doesn't look anything like John 13, 34, and 35. 
You read through Philippians and you see in chapter 4 there are these two women who are fighting amongst themselves. You read Revelation 2 and 3 and Jesus gives an evaluation of seven different churches. And none of those seven churches get a positive evaluation by Jesus. They're very less than glowing. They're a mess. And so these early Christians, they fit a quote I heard this week. Here it goes. To be connected with the church is to be associated with scoundrels, warmongers, fakes, murderers, adulterers, and hypocrites of every description. End quote. I hate to say it, but the early Christians, they're not the only ones who fit this description. I think the modern church does too. In fact, I think every human organization is made up of these kind of people. So while the church fits all these descriptors, it should also have one more very different descriptor alongside of it, according to Jesus in this text. We're supposed to have gospel love. And gospel love is distinctive. And you know you've come up upon it when you see a love that's characterized by repentance, forgiveness, and loving across difference. You know you've come across this love when you see repentance, forgiveness, and loving across difference. Think about repentance. I know you wouldn't say it, but we often enter into relationships and we've got a really hard time dealing with people when they mess up, especially when they mess up and that affects us. I think one of the places that I see it as your pastor is as you are processing, uh, as young, many of you being young adults, you're processing uh, the, the, the imperfections of your parents. You're processing them often with me. You're coming to grips with this. There's usually a tinge of anger associated with all this. And I usually ask you the question, what do you need from your parents now? And we journey down this rabbit hole. And usually you'll come around and you'll say, I just need them to see how they've hurt me and apologize. Whew. That's some deep stuff. But it rarely happens. It seems so simple, but it's impossible. Because when we're faced with our sin, we rationalize it, we blame shift, we deny. So it's a miracle when we actually repent. So do you see what makes for an amazingly loving parent? <laughs> it's the ability to repent. Now, if the offender has a responsibility to repent, the offended has a responsibility too. It's not just to wallow in their victimhood. They've got a responsibility, and it's to forgive. We pray it all the time in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? You see it in that one line. Forgive me of my debts. Repentance. As I forgive my debtors. Forgiveness. And here's the crazy thing about the gospel is that forgiveness is demanded from us by Jesus even when those who have sinned against us don't apologize. But that's usually what we think we need in order to forgive someone, but it's not. What we need in order to forgive, according to Jesus, is only to be forgiven. So when you have the proper view of your sin before God, it should so humble you that you're able to extend forgiveness another. 
I heard a story uh, once of the, the National Church in Germany right after World War II. And right before World War II, the church had split. It had split because of what Hitler had demanded from the church. He demanded, of course, absolute loyalty. The churches that gave loyalty, they made it through the war mostly safe because they had political coverage. The churches that didn't give unconditional loyalty suffered great persecution. Their ministers, their members were killed. They were put in concentration camps. And so when the war was ended, how do you think these two groups, these two different sects of the church, how do you think that they engaged with one another? I would think that there's great possibility for division and hatred. I mean, one side had suffered such great loss and the other one had lost virtually no one. And so when they gathered, one of the leaders instructed everyone to spend several days searching their heart before God in silence. And while God searched their hearts, when they were alone, they confessed their sins, they forgave from their hearts, and when they reunited, they were one. That's love. So let me ask you a couple questions. Has someone in the church, maybe it's someone in this room, maybe it's just another Christian that's not here today, have they hurt you? Have you been waiting to get an appropriate level of repentance from that, par from that party before you forgive? Well, brother and sister, that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't wait for you to repent before he forgave you. He loved you so much that he died for you, even though you weren't yet sorry for your sin. Isn't that amazing? And so when this is your view of Christian love, you've got this flow of repentance, you've got this flow of forgiveness that's derived out of the gospel, that's compelling. <laughs> that's compelling to a watching world. And that's the kind of community that draws sinners in. Because it draws them in because they know that there's a place that they don't have to hide. They have to hide from all the shame and the guilt. They don't have to, they, they realize that there's a way to be free from bitterness. And that's true on an individual level. But what might it look like on a corporate level? When groups of people apologize to other groups of people, and when groups of people forgive other groups of people, well, I think you see revival there too. I heard a story of an Afrikaner. Afrikaner is a South African that's of Dutch descent. And she gave her conversion story. And she said that her conversion all started when she was in college. And she went to a, a church. There were, there were both fellow Afrikaners who were worshiping right alongside native South Africans. And she was stunned. She had lived her whole life in South Africa. And she had never seen a meaningful gathering of any type of real unity between these two groups. And she said that this that this was the beginning of her conversion. So not only does the love of Jesus, that Jesus talks of here, denote forgiveness and repentance, but it also includes the ability to love across difference, just like it did for this Afrikaner. See, love within the community of God is what one theologian calls the final apologetic. 
that your belief in Jesus isn't the final apologetic. That's not what Jesus has given the world the right to judge you on. Jesus doesn't tell the world that they can give us a theology test. Jesus tells the world that they can give us a love test. And the world has every right to judge us if we are Christians based on the observable love that we have for one another. I know you think that to win over uh, lost folk, non-Christians, you've got to be smart. You've got to deal with non-Christians in these philosophical debates. You've got to know a bunch of stuff from the Bible. And that is important because many non-Christians have honest questions that are required for us to give honest answers. But the ultimate, the ultimate evidence of our faith is the love we have for our fellow Christian. This is the kind of love that arrests a non-Christian's imagination. They don't want gooey feelings of sentimentality. Those are easy to discard. They're easy to see as fake. But the harder it is to love, the more likely the non-Christian observes the miracle of a loving community. So where do we start? I think the first place we can start is our family. If you have children, you've been thinking about, you probably wake up every day just longing for them to come to know Jesus. And you might think that, okay, that's what I want for my kids, so I'm going to take them to church. They're going to see me read my Bible. I'm going to put them in Christian schools. But I think the way our children are going to come to know that Jesus is glorious is when they see a love that repents and forgives within the household. When they see parents forgive one another. When they see parents repent to their children. See, if you can't forgive and repent to your spouse and your kids, don't expect your kids to be converted. And on the flip side, if you can forgive and repent to your kids and to your spouse, then there's a really good chance that they know the love of Christ for themselves. That's what this verse is telling us. So that's one place you can start. It's within the family. I think another place you can start is with other churches and other denominations. Uh, Anne Lamott is a prolific Christian writer. And let's just say, if you read any of her stuff, she leans a little left. And she once said that she had to repent because she had come under great conviction for how badly she did not want to see George W. Bush in heaven. I admire her for that. Because I think for all of us, there are certain stripes of Christians that we have a really hard time imagining being in heaven with us. Maybe they're megachurch Christians. Maybe they're Catholics. Maybe they're fundamentalists. Maybe they're Pentecostals. I don't know. And I'm not saying we can't disagree. But you know you've moved from disagreeing to being unloving when you withhold relationship from someone from a different Christian tribe. Another place, besides your family, besides loving those from other churches and denominations, is social gatherings. Think about when you gather folks. Maybe it's Fourth of July, maybe it's your birthday, maybe it's Thanksgiving, maybe it's Christmas. Who's in the room? Is it mostly Christians or non-Christians? Believers or unbelievers? Well, here's my hope for the church, for our church 
is that when we gather in these kinds of ways, that there are people from within our church there. (laughs) And I also hope that there are meaningful relationships that you have that you can draw in those people to see the relationships that we have amongst our community. And as we come up on Halloween, as we come up on Thanksgiving, I think it's a great time to ask, how can I gather my coworkers and my neighbors around my church community so that they can observe the final apologetic? In closing, I, I just can't help but see the cross. On Golgotha, you had saintly women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome. And there they are. They're, they're, they're mourning the death of their Savior. They're heroes in many ways. But also there at Golgotha, you have crooks. They're hanging on Jesus' right and left. One repented, one didn't. When you're there at Golgotha, you can hear the mockers on every side. Ruining at Jesus. So when you have a picture of this scene, it's really quite a crew, isn't it? But do you see Jesus there? He's there offering love. Love that'll never hit empty. It's a love that's greater than the guilt and shame of your sin. It's a love that your rebellion could never outrun. The quantity of his love is limitless. It's infinite. Because he doesn't have to store it up. It's just who he is. And that's the supply that you and I can tap into. As we love our fellow Christians, regardless of what they've done to us, regardless of what we've done to them, regardless of how different they are. And Hope Presbyterian Church, may we exhibit this kind of love among us. Amen.